Our focus this morning has been much on prayer, and rightly so. And we've been led to the throne of grace so wonderfully as three of the men prayed earlier and as our brother Rhett has prayed. But let us go to the Lord one more time as we open His Word. Father, we can never come too often before Your throne of grace, and we're reminded that we are to pray always. And so we come now at this moment with specific request for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit in our minds and in our hearts, that there would be light shed upon the text of Your Word, and in such a way that we would see its relevance for our own personal lives. We pray that you would bring the truth of your word home to our hearts, that you would bring it home in a very personal and individual and specific way in our lives. We pray that your word written 2,000 years ago which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, would have great effect upon our lives this day. And so we ask that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be glorified, and that your Spirit would be powerfully at work in our soul as we look into your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles yet again and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles, as you know, the 1 Timothy chapter 4, and my own heart has been drawn to this text for our time together as I have been given the conference theme, which is taken from Robert Murray McShane. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. I had to think about this word, awful, its meaning. And the idea is the context of war, that a weapon would strike great terror and dread into the enemy and into the foe. And as McShane uses this sentence from this letter that I read to you last night, it was his desire to be so mightily used by God that his life would strike terror in the kingdom of darkness. Much like Martin Luther, who said at the end of his ministry that his desire that would be that his name would be as well known in hell as it is in heaven. And so we want our lives to have this kind of an impact to build up the people of God, but to also fend off the forces of darkness. Much like Nehemiah on the wall, he had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And with the trowel, he was building up the people of God and building up the work of God. But with the other hand, he had a sword with which he was fending off the the enemies of God as they would try to 
intervene and bring to a halt the work of God. Each one of us needs a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Titus 1 verse 9 says that an elder must be able to teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's a sharp two-edged sword that cuts both ways, that both builds up and tears down, that both uproots and, and plants. And it's the full-orbed such ministry that we must have. And if we are to be such a man to be used by God, I believe that McShane has put his finger on the live nerve. As he has identified that who we are takes precedence over what we do. That it is far more important how we live than where we serve. And that our own maturity takes precedence over our own ministry. And that God must do a work in us before God can do a work through us. And so it necessitates by priority that we be a holy minister. So my heart has been drawn to this text because it has spoken to my own life so many times, and I want it to address us this day. We began last night by looking at verse, in verse 6, as we looked at the spiritual diet of a godly minister, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Just a footnote, many years ago I had a man in my church who had been the assistant of the pastor who at that time pastored the largest evangelical church in America, who fought many battles and was a, a stalwart of the faith. And his pulpit was really a cornerstone for expository preaching. He faced many battles in his church. In fact, the kneelers in this church were put in by this pastor during the week from one Sunday to the next because the conflict in the church was so enormous that when the church showed up that next Sunday, he called the church to prayer to get on their knees to avert an extraordinary cataclysmic uh, collision within that church as one senator had called for waves of taxis to be parked in front of the church, that he would personally pay for every member of the church to hop in a taxi and go down the street to another church. And so this man was relating to me the pressure that this pastor lived under. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And he told me how this man survived 
over 50 years of pastoral ministry in what was at that time the largest evangelical church in America. And he said he gave his mornings to God, he gave his afternoons to men, he gave his evenings to his family, and that he buried himself in the Word of God every single morning. He would not accept a phone call from anyone, even if it was the President of the United States. And I once attended a worship service there where the President of the United States did come. And he was a man who did receive such phone calls, but that he so immersed himself in the Word of God and was constantly nourishing his own soul on the Word that he was so strengthened and so encouraged and so made full of true Christian joy in the midst of the trial that he was able to persevere for over half a century in his pastoral ministry. As I look at verse 6, and just even to touch back upon it, as I spoke last night, it was more in a challenging way that we would be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. But there is also a sense in which if we are to survive in pastoral ministry... To step into pastoral ministry these days, you must be either called or crazy. One of the two. The challenges have never been greater. As we shepherd a flock of people who have been brought up in such a narcissistic society, a self-centered, self-indulgent society, the only way that we are going to remain strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we be constantly nourished by the words of the faith and sound doctrine. But as we continue to read, we read in verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now I want to come to what I want our focus to be in this session And I'm sure we'll not be able to to work our way all the way through what I intend for this session, and we'll pick it up tonight. But we've seen the spiritual diet of a godly minister. I want you to note now, second, the spiritual discipline of a godly minister. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of Godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It has been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. This is especially true when it comes to communicate what it is to be a a Christian. A picture of a Christian is so comprehensive and so far-reaching that no one picture of what it is to be a Christian encompasses the whole. A Christian is a saint, one set apart from the world to God. 
A Christian is a disciple. He is one who is a learner and follower of Jesus Christ. He's also a servant, as this very text points out in verse 6. He is one who is assigned a task and is to give his life in the service of his gracious master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also a steward. He's one who has been entrusted a stewardship and will give an account to the Lord on the last day for how faithful he has been with what has been placed into his hand. Christian is also a sheep, defenseless, wayward. A sheep is, I mean, a Christian is a soldier, one who has been enlisted by the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. And we are those who find ourselves in spiritual warfare, and we must put on the full armor of God. A Christian is a farmer who is to be sowing the good seed. We're workmen who should not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's like holding up a diamond with so many different cuts and sides and turning it in the light that no one side of the diamond is able to encompass the splendor of the whole. Each aspect of these metaphors, these pictures are vitally important if we are to understand what it is to be a Christian and also what it is to be a pastor, whether that be as an overseer or as an elder or as a shepherd of the flock. Even in that sense, these various episkopos, presbyteros, all these different words are necessary. But there is one picture that has become sadly neglected, I think, in the church today. And I think neglected in some parts of the larger Reformed movement. And it is the picture of the athlete. What the athlete is, is what you and I must be. This, too, is an essential component part of understanding what it is I am to be and what it is that I am to do. The Bible says, run in such a way that you may win. It's saying it's not enough that you're in the race. If you're going to be in the race, then run to win. And there's a crown at the end of the race. And those who are faithful to buffet their body will receive this crown. The Bible says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is to be in our life a pressing on to the upward call of Christ's likeness. The Bible says, if anyone competes as an athlete, He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You leave the track, you forfeit a portion of that reward. And Paul could come to the end of his life and say, as he communicates the finality of his ministry to young Timothy, 
He wraps himself in this athletic metaphor to convey to Timothy how he has finished his ministry. And he says, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the course. And the writer of Hebrews says, since we are therefore surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like he's in a stadium, and those who have already run the race before him, Enoch and Abraham and and Sarah and, and Moses and all of the rest in Hebrews 11, they're already up in the grandstands. And by the example of their lives, they are cheering us on and motivating us, and and inspiring us. Noah says to us, you think you stood all alone in your ministry? Let me tell you what it is to stand alone. You may say, I don't know exactly what all God has for my future. And Abraham says, let me tell you what it is to leave one place and head to another and have no idea where it is God will be leading you. And each one of these men are in the grandstands of faith. And they, by their example, are motivating us and and cheering us on to run the race. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so what comes through loud and clear in each of these verses and And in verse 7, where he says, discipline yourself, you can just feel the sweat dripping off of that verse. You can just smell the gem in this verse. You can just hear the the grunts and the groans of of other men on both sides pumping iron and shedding baby fat and, and getting into shape. What comes through loud and clear is that the godly minister must learn from the athlete what it is to be in shape, to be a good servant, to be one with toned up muscles of faith, and to be one who is strengthened to run the race that God has set before us. I want us to lock in on the second half of verse 7. I I want to camp right here. I I, I don't want to be a a scuba diver and just be on the surface and swim over this. I, I want us to go down into this. Look at it again. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It should be very apparent that the goal of discipline is godliness and that without discipline, there would be a diminished godliness. Several things I want you to note here as we begin to look at this. First, I want you to note the command issued. He says, discipline yourself. Paul begins this this charge by calling Timothy and by calling every man in this room. 
to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. This verb, discipline, is drawn from the athletic world. Gymnazo. You can hear gymnasium. You can hear gymnastics in this very root. And this word means to train, as it reads in the ESV, to exercise. In fact, the word literally in its etymology meant to strip down naked. Because when you went into the gymnasium, the athlete would remove all restrictions that would hinder his bodily movements. And he would strip away anything that would hinder his, his, the extension of his limbs or anything that would slow him down. That's the very root word here, to, to, to be in a form where nothing holds you back and to exercise and to train and to discipline yourself. That is what Timothy is to do spiritually. Now, I want to parse this verb just for a moment. It's in the present tense. Timothy, be always disciplining yourself. Timothy, be constantly disciplining yourself. Timothy, this needs to be a lifestyle. This needs to be a habitual pattern. Timothy, day in, day out, in season, out of season, Timothy, be regularly disciplining yourself. Seconds in the active voice. Timothy, you're going to have to take charge of this. Timothy, you're going to have to take control of this. Timothy, you must be active in exerting energy and expending effort in order to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Third, it's in the imperative mood. Paul is saying, Timothy, I charge you to discipline yourself. Timothy, this is not an option. Timothy, this is not a suggestion. Timothy, I command you, discipline yourself. It's second person singular. You, Timothy, you, young man, you, my son in the faith, and is followed by the word yourself. Again, putting the weight of responsibility squarely on Timothy's shoulders. And when we pull all of this together, what Paul is saying to Timothy in the fullest expression of this, Timothy, I command you to be always taking action to expend effort in order to discipline yourself spiritually. In order to understand this, we need to picture an athlete in ancient times who has made a decision to run a marathon. That race may be a year away as they would gather for the Olympic Games, as they would gather for the Isthmian Games right outside of, of Corinth, or as they would gather for the boxing match or for the wrestling matches. And in order to compete... An athlete must first make the commitment that he will train, that he will work out, that he will get in shape. Only a fool would show up on the day of the race to run a marathon 
and you have never even gotten in shape? This requires months and even years of going to the gymnasium, not occasionally, not when you would like to, not when it feels good, but to daily go into the gymnasium and strip down and remove all clothing that would restrict movement and to come under the strict tutelage of a trainer and to lift weights and to build up muscles and to shed excess weight and to run great distances and to build up endurance and to tone muscles and to enlarge lungs in order to do so an athlete who is serious about winning the crown, that it's not enough just to be in the race. It's not enough just to be one of the pack, but to so run the race that you would win the crown at the end of the race. That athlete must discipline himself. And when Paul writes to Timothy now, this is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is the very image that he has in mind. And that the point that Paul is driving home to Timothy is just as any athlete who is serious about getting in shape, he must come to the gym He must strip down, remove all encumbrances, sacrifice liberties, sacrifice freedoms, work out and expend energy. Even so, this is what Timothy must do. Timothy must lay aside every personal encumbrance, lay aside every sin that would entangle him. He must remove all excess baggage, He must deny himself certain liberties and freedoms. He must expend energy in God's gym. He must discipline himself in the pursuit of holiness if he is to be godly. This is exactly the very metaphor that needs to be recaptured in this hour and in this day. We must get in shape spiritually. We must work out in the Word. We must pump iron in prayer. We must work up a spiritual sweat. We must shed excess weight of worldliness and self-sufficiency. We must tone our spiritual muscles in obedience and faith. We must monitor our heart rate for God. We must do heavy lifting and confessing our sins. We must beat down our fleshly desires. We must restrict our liberties and what is expedient. We must build up our endurance. And no matter if you have just been called into the ministry or if you have been in God's ministry for 50 years, no matter if you're a pastor or a teacher, No matter if you are a seminary professor or a seminary student, no matter if you are a minister or a missionary, you and I must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. 
And there are too many pastors today who are spiritual couch potatoes. They are spiritually flabby. They are spiritually pot-bellied. They are spiritually overweight. They are spiritually obese. And I want to say to you, as Paul has spoken here in this imperative, Paul says, I command you as an apostle in the name of Christ, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So are you disciplining yourself? Are you under strict training? Is it not enough for you just to be in the race? Do you truly desire to win the crown? Are you doing heavy lifting in the Word? Are we having to add more weights to the bar as you're building up your strength? Are you shedding your excess fat that is holding you back in being the man of God that God has called you to be. This is the command issued. Second, the character pursued. As we look at verse 11, after he says, discipline yourself. After he says, Timothy, strip down. And remove anything and everything that would hold you back. He now says, for the purpose of, meaning for the glorious goal of, meaning for the chief and highest aim of godliness. It comes from a Greek word which means reverence and awe. It refers to the inner life of the human soul. And the idea is to be gripped with the weightiness of the glory of God. And to be filled with reverential awe for who God is. This word godliness speaks of the inner condition of the soul that is dominated with devotion to God. Godliness here means to be God-centered, to be God-focused, to be God-honoring to be God-fearing. It is a soul that is captivated with the splendor and the majesty of God. It is, to put it in the vernacular, the inner life of one who takes God very seriously. It is the total antithesis of being flippant towards God. It is the very opposite of being kicked back and cool with God. 
It is living with the weight of glory upon you that produces a gravitas in a person's life. This word godliness has been a central theme in 1 Timothy. As you have your Bible out, allow me a moment to trace this through 1 Timothy. If you would, turn back to chapter 2. It's a reoccurring word, a reoccurring thread that is woven through 1 Timothy. And Paul is, is underscoring with Timothy, Timothy, you've got to be a godly young man. And your godliness takes precedence over your giftedness. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Now here it is, in all godliness and dignity. Godliness here refers to the inner life, dignity to the outer life. If you will have dignity, if you will have Godliness within your soul, it will shine out of your life in the way that you conduct yourself with dignity. If you are a goofball with God within your heart, you will be a goofball before men. But if you have godliness in your soul, there will be a proper stature of dignity as you represent the Lord. In chapter 3 and verse 16 is the next time we see the word godliness used in this pastoral epistle. And we read, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Spurgeon was once asked to appear and to preach at a, what would be this similar to a, a Unitarian church. And they said, you just cannot preach anything controversial when you come. And so this is the text Spurgeon chose, and out of the King James, I I think it reads something like, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And he preached the incarnation of Christ, who was revealed in the Spirit, vindicated in the the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, etc., etc. But this mystery of godliness is the mystery of the incarnation of Christ the mystery of Christ's likeness. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, which is our text, godliness is used twice. In verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Next verse, verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. It has eternal value. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, we see the word godliness again. He talks about the doctrine conforming to godliness. Sound doctrine and spiritual godliness are the heads and tails of the same coin. They are twin sisters. Wherever you see the one, it is this doctrine that will always yield godliness. In verse 5, suppose that those false teachers who suppose that godliness is 
a means of gain. Paul uses this sarcastically of the false teachers, their supposed godliness. And then finally, verse 11 of chapter 6, he uses the term yet again in verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness. Righteousness is the outward behavior. Godliness is the inner attitude of reverence for God. And those two are always buttressed together. When the heart is right, the outward life will be right. It's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. And then flowing out of that will be faith, love, perseverance, and, and gentleness. Why is this godliness so important in your life? Why would Paul so underscore this with Timothy? And why does it find itself in the canon of Scripture and preserve now for every pastor in every generation, on, on every continent, and in every part of the body of Christ. Why is it here now a part of the eternal Word of God? And the answer is found, I think, at the end of chapter 4, where he says in verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Note the order. First, who you are, then second, what you do. First, your own heart, and then your public ministry. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. He says, persevere in these things. Do not allow allow yourself to ever be sidetracked or to be pulled away from paying close attention to yourself. Persevere in this. And now he gives the reason why. Four, this introduces the explanation. For as you do this, what is the do this? As you pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That is what the this is. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And Paul is not saying to Timothy, you need to do this in order to be saved. But he is saying, you must pay close attention to yourself for the present tense part of your salvation, which is your sanctification, because how you live your life has enormous ramifications for your ministry. A disciple, after he's been fully trained will be exactly like his teacher. Like priest, like people. And Timothy, wherever you go for the rest of your life, whatever you take serious, the rest of the church will tend to take serious. And wherever you draw the line, the rest of the church, through the leadership of the ruling elders and the deacons and down to the Sunday school teachers and down to the rest of the flock they will tend to draw the water line at where you draw that water line. Timothy, who you are and how you live and how you conduct yourself is of great importance.
what we are before God takes precedence over what we do for God. Our walk with God takes precedent over our work for God. The size of our heart is more important than the size of our church. Our piety is more important than our platform. Our purity is more important than our programs. Our integrity is more important than our ministry. Our soul is more important than our success. As Paul is driving this home to Timothy, so the point, I believe, is being made abundantly clear to us that if we are to compete like a world-class athlete, if we are to compete at the highest level like an athlete who would enter the Isthmian or the Olympic Games, then by necessity it mandates that we discipline our spiritual lives for the purpose of godliness. I'm so wanting to unpack the rest of this, but I'm going to stop right here. And perhaps by God's design, almost like now a selah in a psalm, to pause and meditate, to lift up, is what the word selah means, to lift up. Could have meant lift up with a crescendo with the music or lift up the mind to think. Let us now lift up our minds and ponder and audit our own spiritual life and ask ourselves the question how good of a servant of Christ Jesus do I want to be? How faithful, how strong in grace, how set apart from the world, how saturated with Scripture, how dependent upon God in prayer do I want to be? Is it enough for me to simply be in the ministry? Is it enough for me to simply be in the race? Or do I want to press on to the prize? Do I want to forget what lies behind? Do I want to reach forward to what lies ahead? Do I want to run the race in such a way as to win the prize? Do I want to box as not without aim? Do I want to not be disqualified? The answers to those questions are worthy of careful thought as we consider disciplining ourselves like an athlete 
for the purpose of godliness. If it was easy, we would all be good. No pain, no gain. And as we will look tonight, we must labor and we must strive. We must agonizomai. There must be some agony as we push ourselves to be as fit, to be as focused, to be as trim, to be as strong, to be as in shape as we possibly can. The older I get, the more I hate looking into the mirror. Because I don't look like what I used to look like. And there is excess weight on me. I'm so thankful that the opposite can be true spiritually. That as we look into the mirror of the law of liberty, there can be a trimness and a strength that we must have if we are to be a holy minister and an awful weapon in the hand of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, these in this room are among your most choice servants. These in this room are men whom you have enlisted and whom you have put into the race. And you have opened their eyes and they are taught of God and they have seen glorious truths in your word that for reasons known only to yourself, even others who are in the race have not seen. These men have beheld your transcendence and your majesty and your sovereignty and your holiness in ways that are surpassing even other runners in the race. And Lord, I pray that these choice servants would be the most disciplined, would be the most trim, would be the fastest, would be those who most persevere in running the race that you have set before them. May the hope of your son standing at the finish line with the crown pull them forward as they discipline themselves for godliness. We are reminded that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and that each man will receive the recompense according to what he has done, whether good 
or bad. And Lord, I pray that there would be in this room world-class champions. Though they pastor small churches, though they may be off the beaten road, may they so distinguish themselves that on the last day they will be recognized as those who have supremely disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness. God, by your grace, by the empowering of your spirit, by the motivation of your glory, bring this to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.